Pages of Pim Better Podcast. Greetings, Voyagers. Welcome to the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. This is episode number 206. My guest for today's episode is Dr. Ariel Watson. I know Dr. Watson from working in the world of education. She is originally from South Africa, and I knew through talking to her that she lived the first part of her life through apartheid in South Africa. I thought that this would be an appropriate topic for this week because it is the anniversary, I think 31 years, that makes me really old, Uh, but 31 years since Nelson Mandela was let out of prison in South Africa. So likely you're aware of what apartheid was, but I'll try to give you a very concise history here. After World War II, when the majority of countries that were still colonizing around the world were decolonizing, the white minority, largely Dutch, ruling power in South Africa legalized segregation. So it had already existed, and this was now like a codified legal system that supported this system of white supremacy in South Africa. And so you likely know segregation to be something that prevents access to places, to jobs, to legal protection. And these are the things at the sort of the later stages of apartheid that Dr. Watson grew up within. So her story, I think, is really fascinating. And she is a brilliant educator who I admire very much. So I was very happy that she came on and shared her story today. We had a little bit of difficulty recording the way that I usually record remotely. And so we did this for the very first time in 200 plus episodes via Zoom. So as I record this, I haven't heard the final recording, but I know through full confidence in Brian the Wizard that he made this sound really good. So just wanted to say thank you to Brian. Okay, everybody, please enjoy this conversation with Dr. Oriel Watson. All right, yeah, so this week was an anniversary, and I thought that it would be really timely to have this conversation. Uh, I believe you said that the anniversary was the anniversary of Mandela getting out of prison. Is that correct? Yes. Okay, cool, cool. So that, I would imagine, holds uh, a special significance for you. Yes, it does. As a South African... um Citizen, a huge amount of significance. You were born in Durban, is that true? Yes, uh, born and raised in uh, Durban, South Africa. Okay, so naturally, I haven't been, uh, but in preparation for talking to you today, I was looking at it a bit. The impression that I got was maybe now in 2020, Durban is like a vacation spot for people. It looks like it's on the water, they're surfing. 
you know, conversation about apartheid aside, uh, what was the, the town or the city like when you were growing up? Oh, it is, it was absolutely beautiful. Um, and growing up as a young woman of color, uh, the lifestyle was very different. So as you can imagine, me immigrating to the United States, it was a huge culture shock. But when I grew up in Durban, I grew up in a place called Winsworth, which is not far from um, from the beach. You can walk to the beach from where I live. And it was very normal for people to have uh, swimming pools in their backyards or for us to walk to the beach. So that was normal for us. We pretty much grew up in the water. So we were at the beach all the time. When I was in high school, I learned to surf. Uh, yes, <laughs> I do surf. Uh, we learned to swim. Uh, one of our high school requirements was that we needed to know how to uh, swim before we graduate from high school. So we were always at the beach. You know, the seasons are opposite. So we uh, spend Christmas on the beach, New Year's in on the beach. Um, a lot of um, beach town type fields, a lot of things that you would do that's associated with the beach community, um, we would do, which is kind of the opposite than what people know and see. Um, but yeah, just the beach. Uh, the difference is that, you know, some of the beaches were segregated. So we had to choose which beaches we could go to and which beaches we could not go to. Just typical high school um activities, you know, hanging out at the mall on the weekends, um, going to going to clubs when we were in high school. I played a lot of sports. So when I was not at the beach, I was playing sports, uh, played hockey, um, field hockey in high school. Um, then I went on to playing netball. And those are sports I was like, nah, it's not really for me. Then I decided to try soccer. Uh, and that's where my true love came in. We used to call it football. Yeah. Uh, so played soccer in high school and I didn't realize I was really good at it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> until I reached the 11th grade so much that I received a few scholarships in high school. And I decided to go with um, the soccer scholarship because it was offering the most amount of money. So yeah, it was just a mix of you know, enjoying being a high school teenager, you know, prioritizing sports and then prioritizing my schoolwork um, and, you know, just social justice initiatives within the community was also one of the things that I also balanced as well. How old were you when you realized or maybe even understood this system of apartheid? Like, did your, did your parents ever at some point sit you down and say, like, this is the reality that we're living in? a really good question. When I think back to my high school life, I didn't really realize much of it in high school because a lot of our teachers we had did not speak to us about it. Um, I knew something was wrong when I must have been, uh, we still call it standard, standard one, standard two. So our junior year in America would be standard nine. In my junior year, when we were reading a few novels and I remember my teacher sneaking the color purple. It was one of the banned books in South Africa. So there was a list of books that we couldn't read. And I looked at the color purple and I was just like, why is the book so thin? Why are the pages torn out of the book? My teacher was like, oh, that's the book we have to read. 
And I was really shocked. I was like, but this is not a complete book. He was like, well, you know what we're living through segregation. This is the, the part of the book we can read. So we were given parts of textbooks or reading books where we could only read certain parts of the book. So at that point, I knew something was wrong, but I was like, okay, so this is how the color purple starts. And years later, I come to find out that that was actually the middle of the color purple. So I grew up just not knowing where the book, the color purple started. Later on in life, I would find out after I immigrated to the United States. But at that point, I did question my, uh, my teacher and he was just like, this is the way it is. When I went home, so my mom is a politician um, and I grew up knowing the time and the space that we're living in. We would go to a lot of like rallies with my sister and I, with my parents. And so we knew what's going on in terms of a political climate. But in terms of us having the deep conversations, my mom and my stepdad would avoid those deep conversations because they assumed that those conversations were happening in school. Mm-hmm. And in school, when we asked questions, our teachers were like, when you go home, your parents are going to tell you. So it's just one of those things where it's like, let's just go about our business. This is what we're living through. When I graduated from high school, uh, Nelson Mandela was being released that year when I when I turned 18. So I ended up voting in that first historical election. But at that point, I went to um, the University of South Africa and I was studying journalism. So it wasn't until that year when I was 18 when I really knew how bad things are because I'm in university and at this point, everything is out in the open. I'm not just, you know, participating blindly. Um, I'm really getting exposed to the journalism field. When we were doing broadcasting journalism and we were given, you know, assignments to cover different stories, then I was like, oh, wow, Uh, this is what we're really living through. And then I decided to take it upon myself to really research in detail, you know, what is really going on. And the university libraries, there was a part of the library in my university that was sort of like a a facade where it's sort of like, this is where the library ends, but there was a back door where we had uh, a group of people within the university that hid certain books that we had access to, uh, like banned books and stuff like that in terms of history books. So we really started reading books that didn't exist in my high school library. And it really started opening my eyes. I was like, oh, there's a world beyond South Africa in terms of certain things. We knew the world outside, but it was just limited knowledge we were given. So I think that was the turning point for me where it was like, oh, wow. Then I really started getting into reading and I was like, wow, because that section where we were finally a select group of people could read those books that it's like, oh, wow, I'm seeing the world through a different lens and sort of the scale started coming off my eyes. When you were in grade school, were your teachers from that like Dutch white minority? It was a mix. Uh, So it depends. So we... Growing up, we had to, we did some of our, our classes in Afrikaans, uh, which is like an old, old form of Dutch, and some of them in English. So I did have some teachers that were from that, um, from the Dutch sort of British uh, background, and we had some teachers that were um, in the South African context colored, because um, I would be regarded as colored not as African in the South African context, because we racially divided into four groups, uh, Indian, African, colored, and white. So I'm 
regarded as colored because even though I look like a person of color, it's colored, which is different because, you know, a lot of different things, you know, I sound different than a traditional African person. My accent is different. It's more on the British side uh, features as well um, because we were also classified into the different uh, skin shades and I would be I would be considered really dark for a colored person because a lot of people in my family they look like um, traditional in the context of South Africa whites um, so I would be one of the darker people in my family um, but in terms of that yes we had a mix of of teachers and then when I got to the university level it just it got less when I was in high school. When I was in high school, I had no white teachers at all because I decided to go to a school where it was only, um, it was in my neighborhood. And in my neighborhood at that time, there were no uh, quote unquote white teachers in that neighborhood. And then when I shifted to a sort of tertiary education, the colleges, then I started seeing most of my um, professors, you know, we used to call them um uh, uh, lecturers, most of my lecturers were people um, white or British, uh, very few people of color at the tertiary level. Yeah, that, that sort of colonial structure of classifying people by race and physical characteristics, I mean, that's classic colonialism. And we're talking all the way up into the 1990s here. And something I was surprised about in doing a little research for this conversation was the amount of Asians who are in South Africa and the classification that they received based upon even skin color. So like darker skinned Asians were closer to like colored or black African, whereas some like lighter skinned Chinese folks were higher up on that stratified structure of race. Um, I, I want to say it's interesting, but I don't say it's interesting like, oh, wow, that's a good thing. I mean, it's a terrible thing, but I had just never realized, I guess, the amount of, of people from Asia who are also in South Africa. Yes, we have a large uh, Indian influence. Um, South Africa is also known as the Rainbow Nation yeah. as well. We have people from all over the world. And when I went to high school, even though I went to, I went to an all black school. My sister had a different uh, um, outcome. My sister's two years younger than me. So she, once schools became um, desegregated, my sister went into a school where uh, we used to call them white schools. So when I'm using the word whites, it was more of like the South African context of it. So she would go to, she went to white school. So her, her experience was very different. Right. But I went to school where it was, um, quote unquote, a colored school in my neighborhood. So it would be considered like one of the roughest schools. I refused to go to a school outside of that. I had opportunities to go when the schools became uh, desegregated when I was in um, standard 10, which is sort of like your sophomore year. Um, and then we had mixed students. So we had um, the same like you're saying, we had a lot of, um, quote unquote, Indian students. Um, students in our school. And then within the Indian population, we had really light-skinned Indians that were treated very different. Mm. We didn't have, I didn't go to any schools where there were white kids. So I never went to uh, schools of white kids at all. My first experience of going to school with white kids was when I went to college. And that for me was a huge culture shock because I wasn't prepared. Uh, because I viewed white people a certain way based on what we were taught in our schools. 
you know, in terms of where I came from, but through our program and through like upbringing, I was just like, I had to open my eyes and like, oh, okay, you know what? Let me open my eyes to these different people uh, from different races and different backgrounds. But in terms of, you're right, in terms of, we didn't have a lot of Asian um, Americans, like, you know, um, Chinese or Koreans. We had um, a lot of Indian, traditionally um, Indian people. We have, in terms of food and, you know, still love, I love Indian food to this day. So even within our household, we ate a wide range of foods. So we ate curries, we ate traditional African food. We also ate British food as well. So it was a wide mix of food um, and also our languages as well. Like growing up, um, I speak English as a first language. So this kind of reflects um, the races and the mix of where we're coming from. So I speak English as a first language, Afrikaans as a second language, uh, Zulu, was a third language um, that I didn't really speak it growing up when I was in high school, but my mom knew it. When I went to college, when you studying subjects like journalism, you have to know at least one African language and you have to know one international language outside of English. So when I went to college, I learned French for the first time because we had to have another international language and then Zulu for the first time. Um, so I ended up speaking four languages, English, Afrikaans, Zulu, and uh, French. Um, I've lost a lot of the, <laughs> the French and the Zulu over the years. But once I start speaking with somebody, especially uh, native South African, we speak in a mix of languages uh, when we're speaking. So our English, um, like if I'm speaking with somebody from South Africa, a lot of our slang is Afrikaans slang and Zulu slang mixed with English. So it's a very interesting conversation and then the languages come out and it's just like okay you said something that was Zulu um my mom speaks five languages uh she speaks Tosa and Sutsu um as well as English Afrikaans and Zulu I was gonna ask about that because I know that there's a push now to sort of I don't even know if it's like to eradicate Afrikaans but it's essentially the the language from the oppressive force so I was wondering if, if you were aware at all when you were young of any friends or families or even in your family of like purposefully using something like Zulu or purposefully trying to preserve it to hang on to the language that existed prior to that colonization as like an act of resistance. The, the acts of resistance, it depended on the neighborhoods that you came from. So even within the race groups, we were further segregated by class. Mm. When I was growing up, I didn't realize that, I didn't know this until years later, that I grew up middle class. I thought, I honestly didn't know that there were different classes. I was just like, well, this is the way people are, are raised. I knew that there's different slums and different shanty towns and people grew up poorer than me. So I didn't real, even realize within South Africa, like a lot of people around us had a swimming pool. I didn't realize that that was privilege, mm. you know, and I didn't understand that. I was just like, well, this is how everyone lives. But even within our circles, the reason I bring that up is within the circles, because I went to school with a lot of students that would come in from the townships, we would call the, the shacks and stuff, the townships from the outer skirts of Durban. When they came in, they would speak like Zulu, the traditional African students. And there was also this divide between Khalids and Africans, because we look different, we sounded different. 
we looked a, li- a lot more um, European. When we had conversations with them, if we were friends with them, um, they would speak Zulu. And even though I didn't speak it formally in high school, I started learning it because then they would gossip about us. So there was this divide within the groups and within us as colleagues, we would speak English and we would speak Afrikaans as well. So it's a mix of those two. But when I was at home, um, my mom and my grandmother, they would speak Zulu and Tosa uh, between them. But with us, they would speak English with us. So I primarily spoke English um, at home. And then, you know, my mom to this day would correct every single sentence. And she's like, you don't end a sentence with a preposition. And, you know, so it, it, it just ended up being mainly English that I spoke. Uh, but I just adjusted according to the different social circles that I was in. That's really interesting because we both work in the world of education. We've seen kids fight over a Facebook comment. I mean, did that cause a lot of issues for kids in school? Like were there, were there kids fighting over stuff like that? Yes, very much so because what it, it became really controversial because where I grew up, I grew up in one of the poorest neighborhoods and I didn't realize within the poorest neighborhoods, similar to New York City, there's also decent neighborhoods within poor neighborhoods. So it's sort of like that, um, those phases of like when you see gentrification happening. So when I was raised, so my grandmother, even though she is, you know, she's traditionally colored, she's very, very light skinned. So she could pass as being white. And I was raised, even though as a woman of color, I was raised that you don't date black guys. Like you don't date colored guys and you don't date black guys. And if you do date a colored guy, he has to be light skinned. Hmm. So when I went to school, that caused a conflict because it was just like, those are the guys that were attracted to me. And it's sort of like, I was like, I cannot date. And they're like, why? And I was really honest. I can't date those guys, which is really a form of contention because they knew our families and they knew how we were raised. So that was an issue. So I just ended up being like, I'm not even going to date in high school because this is like, it's not what I believe in. And I'm not in social circles where people don't look like me. And I just don't believe in dating differently. We're going through apartheid. So it was a double standard for me. I didn't understand. I was just like, wait, we're being oppressed by the government, but even in our community, I'm being told I cannot date somebody because everyone in my family is really light-skinned and I cannot date somebody that's as dark as me. Is that almost a way to keep you safe in the sense that like, maybe if that's how you were dating, like police would be less likely to mess with you and, and stuff like that? Yes, definitely. So when I did question my grandmother, um, I didn't question immediately, but I started questioning when I got older, when I was 17, in a respectful way, because we never, we were taught never to question um, our elders, but I would ask in a really non-threatening way. And she would be like, well, you know what, you guaranteed, because at that point, there was no Indian sign in terms of apartheid. And they felt like if you did date somebody lighter, you wouldn't be... um, you would less likely to be stopped because on our South African IDs, we, we used to call it a don't pass on our ID documents. It has a different kind of colored classification. So within black, you have different colored classifications. On my ID, I think I still have it though. It says a K colored. 
And on the Cape color, that's a classification of your skin color. Actually, since I moved to the United States, I actually got darker, which is very interesting. So when I first came, I was classified like the brown paper bag, like as a Cape colored. So in terms of the Cape colored, my grandmother's rationale was that, you know what, I, I want you to be safe. I want you to have a better life. So she equated white with being better because my grandfather, he's parents were British and Dutch. So she married into that family and she saw that her lifestyle was a lot better. So she felt like she's passing this on to her grandchildren. And I was the eldest grandchild out of nine. So I had to set that boy in terms of like you just dating. So when I went to college, I, you know, the first boyfriend I had was white. And because that's all that I knew. And mm -hmm. I think we conditioned in such a way. I, I don't think that I was racist. I think for me, I was just misinformed about apartheid and how it related to me as a black woman. I was really confused at that point in my life because um, I had not like really dated. That was my first boyfriend because in high school, I was just like, listen, I don't agree with this. I'd rather not date, focus on school, focus on college, got to college. And what was interesting was that the way black and colored men view, viewed us as women on the college campus that they would stay away from us. At least at my college campus, they would stay away and they would kind of take a step back. And then I only had white guys asking me out. And I was like, oh, okay, so this is the way it needs to be. Even though I was educated in a sense and I was educating myself, I feel at that time I was still finding my way. And I was just like, okay, this is my first boyfriend. Let's go with it, you know? And I dated, and then as I sort of evolved into my second year in college, my eyes started getting open, open about a lot of different things. And then I was like, oh, okay, wow. My eyes really were closed for the most part in terms of certain races, because it doesn't mean a person of color in a community going through apartheid understands all that because nobody wants to talk to us about it. Nobody wants to even talk to women about sex during that time. My mom had me when she was 16 because she didn't understand sex. So wow. the generation continued where it's like, you're not gonna have a conversation with me. So I had to educate myself when I got to college. And I think that was my year where I really found myself. And I was just like, wow. Um, yeah, and I started, you know, moving outside different social circles and making sure that I was, I had a wide mix of, of friends, not just people that looked like me. It's interesting because it's also, it's, you know, it's pre Twitter. It's really pre like the heyday of the internet. And even if you've seen resistance movements in, in Egypt or Syria or wherever, like that is how people are staying connected and staying informed and letting people know what's going on. And if you didn't have that access, I guess, yeah, the one place you would learn would be university. Um, it, the, that card that you mentioned, like your, it's essentially like your ID passport almost Mm -hmm. that would determine where you could and couldn't go? Yes. So in terms of where we are, so um, if you look at pictures of apartheid in South Africa, you can see coloreds only. So when we would go back to the beach, back to the example I was saying of the beach. So even the beach, there would be a divide in the beach. This is coloreds only, whites only on the beach. So with that said, I would have to stick to the colored side, even the water water fountains like you know me I'm in my early 40s so for me I grew up in the height of that so for me going through that it's more of like 
you stick to the colored side. But what was interesting was that since my, my family is truly colored and my mom has two sisters that look like me and two other sisters that are much more light skinned, when my aunts would go to the beach with us, they would come to the colored side and sometimes police officers would push them and say, you need to be on that side of the beach and not knowing that they colored. And they would be like, you need to be on that side. And these are my mom's sisters that the one has uh, green eyes, the other one has blue eyes and they come from the same family, Um, but they just mixed. So they would pass that test in some areas, in other areas, they're like, oh, you clearly colored because you can clearly see your features are mixed. So it was very, it was very interesting in terms of the areas we could and could not go into. Uh, we couldn't go into schools. Um, when I entered high school, that's why I stayed in my high school. There's only certain high schools we could go into depending on how we, um, how you looked. But a lot of it had to do with your your facial features, because a lot of colored people, all the other features would look um, Western. Like you, you could tell as a colored person that you weren't African because you look differently. So even today, if I'm walking out in the streets in New York, you wouldn't tell that I'm South African until I open my mouth. You would think that I'm African-American by the way I look, (laughs) you know? So um, yeah, it was very, it's a very, it was a very interesting time. Did you ever witness you know, a political violence or like a whole lot of police oppression? Yes. Um, the earliest memory that I have was in high school. I think it was my freshman year of high school. We, you know, teenagers back to the beach situation you know we would go to the beach quite often we we're learning to surf you know you know very much a beach town and we decided like the colored side of the beach was really dirty they wouldn't clean it and it's like you would see jellyfish on the beach and it was really seaweed and stuff like that so we climbed over the fence to the white side of the beach and the white side of the beach, I remember it was Anstey's beach. It's really, really rocky. So we climbed over to the white side of the beach because there were no policemen around. And we were playing. I mean, we kids, we just like, we're going to try to get away with it. And maybe an hour or so later, I guess there were people in the nearby houses that informed the police and the police came, um, but they came with the, uh, the dogs and they, um, they set the dogs They set the dogs off on us. Um, we don't have to re- revisit it if you don't want to. I don't want to. I'm okay. Okay. Um, they set the dogs off on us, you know, the big uh, police dogs. And it was just like, let them loose. And the dogs were trained to attack us. Wow. And at that point, we just ran out of the water. Those of us that were on the beach, we just scattered. But the dogs attacked us it were like three dogs and there must have been like four or five of us and some of us got away um I wasn't quick enough to get away because they you know I was one of the first people that they encountered and I got bitten by one of the dogs the German shepherds and a friend of mine got bitten as well um and they just left us there they were just like you know and they would call us cappers 
Um, that's the equivalency of the N word. Um, so they would, I would say, um, Kappas, you'll need to go, um, you'll need to go um, to where you, where you came from. So at that point, dogs attacked and they just left us there. And then they chased after the dogs attacked us that were there. And then one of the police officers motioned, I remember really clearly to the third dog to chase after the other friends of mine that were going to the colored side. So they went after them. And then when they were further down, probably like maybe a kilometer down the beach, it's more of like, okay, you know what, come. And then those dogs got off us. But my friend and I were laying there just, my leg was, but I still have, you know, one of the scars to today um, as a reminder of what happened, but they just left us on the beach. And there was a neighbor that was not too far away that was a fisherman. So fishing is really, really common. So I guess you probably, I don't even remember how long we were there, to be honest. Um, I know it must've been a really long time. Um, because I felt like blood and, you know, feeling like you bleeding from it with inside. It wasn't a good feeling. Fishermen walking by, it must've been probably, I don't even think it was an hour, but it, it just felt like time was standing still. Might've been longer. And then they ended up getting us. Um, these were like Indian fishermen because um, it was really common for Indian people uh, to fish in that neighborhood. Um, and they were walking in from, from that side. And Thank God that they were walking in from that side because they were fishing illegally. Because now that I think of it to this day, they were coming in from that side. They were coming in from the white side where they were fishing. And I don't know, maybe it was God putting them in our path. We ended up being in the hospital and um, we were fine. But that was my earliest experience. Um, we had I had a lot of other experiences in terms of um mainly college experiences. Um, yeah, high school experiences, yes, because I played soccer and when we would come into the fields in some of these schools that were predominantly white, um, we would walk out of the locker room, like, you know, you're coming into the stadium, we would get fans that would spit on us or close to being spit on. We've been spat on a couple of times in terms of us going into a neighborhood where, quote unquote, we weren't welcome, but we we're just like, we kids, we just playing through it. We just got used to the norm of being hated when we went into certain neighborhoods, but the team that I played for was pretty good. So we had to start playing with other teams within the division and I was up for a scholarship. So I had to deal with that stuff in order for me to get to the scholarship level because I couldn't, I couldn't limit myself to the neighborhood teams and say, I don't want to play. So I had to do that as a short-term sacrifice. Like I had the conversation with some mental teachers and my mom and they're like, well, this is what you got to deal with right now. We didn't have the option like American kids right now can speak out. Like you couldn't go to the police. You couldn't go to lawyers. I didn't know any black lawyers when I was growing up where you're going to sue them and stuff. It's you had to do it. And I was the first person in my family that went to college and was like, okay, this is a sacrifice you go through. So it was more of like, it's what you do. Um, then in college, it was different because we got, you know, I got arrested a few times in college. Um, and these were protests because like I mentioned before, I was a journalism student. I was a political science um, major. Uh, later on, I went on to sports and sports broadcasting. But through that, we had a lot of um, times where I was taking a photojournalism class and we would have to go to live events to capture whether it was, you know, the 
photography or the videography. So we went through all those stages in my journalism class. And there were times where it was just like, we were part of the movement where there was King's Park, uh, where it was, um, you know, free all the political prisoners. I remember one of the events where it was like, it was a rally where it was like, you know, free Steve Beagle, Amakatrada, all those uh, political prisoners at that time where we would be part of those protests, like free these prisoners. And it was just like, we would get arrested, you know, whether we, we I was affiliated to the, with the ANC. So I would have an ANC t-shirt and we get arrested and, you know, it was probably got arrested a few times. And sometimes my mom would have to come and get me. Sometimes our college professors. So it just depended. Um, but it was a lot of different runnings in different circles. But I'm grateful that the university that I went to, we were allowed the opportunity to have a voice and for me to find my voice um, and speak up. So that was my saving grace as far as where we were, because the neighborhood I grew up in, there was nobody speaking out. It was uh, de Klerk who like officially legally ended segregation, right? Or apartheid. Yes. I'm wondering like, so obviously here in the United States, the echoes of segregation and the echoes of many years of slavery in this country exist today. We see this in, in movements that are happening to educate people. We're, we're seeing political violence in our country. Um, and, and that like legal ending of segregation was a lot farther into the past than it was in South, South Africa. I'm wondering like in that, in those immediate years or even upwards till today, like I think the, the word for, I have this somewhere for, for white supremacy is like Baskap um, in South Africa. I'm wondering like how much did things actually change in those initial years? And like how much of this system still existed and maybe even exists today? Really good question. So in terms of not really post-apartheid, I'm trying to think of the word to use, but after Nelson Mandela was released from prison, um, we were treated differently depending on the color of your skin. Mm. So I spoke earlier about the segregation, even within being a person of color. So even though I'm a person of color, my surname is it's a white surname, right? A white being British surname. So the way it works was that when even when you applied for jobs, people saw your first name and your your surname, right? When you see my first name and your my surname on a resume, that's the way they would sift through jobs. So immediately they knew based on my first and my my surname that I'm either white or I'm colored. They knew I was an African because of my name. You know my name, you know my last name. It's not traditionally African, it's British, right? So based on that, that continued. But what would happen was that it became a time where, because people of color were oppressed for so long and African people and colored people were oppressed, 
it seems like at least my experience, and again, this is sort of my individual experience of people who right. have experiences. What I went through and what everyone went through around me that was close to me was that it seemed like people that were traditionally African, like to have a traditional African last name, um, first name, surname, and lived in certain neighborhoods, they were beginning giving preference. So it's sort of being almost apartheid in reverse where me as a woman of color who was colored, but not quite African, I was still being discriminated against because I wasn't black enough. This was like immediately after apartheid, like that year where it was like, okay, um, well, you're not really African. And you're not really, you weren't really oppressed. I was like, well, we lived through the same thing, but in terms of opportunities. So I ended up getting into college because of, you know, um, on my own merits, but in terms of like job opportunities, whether it was college opportunities on campus or whether even it was playing on the starting lineup in my team, where I would be passed by somebody that was traditionally African because I was colored. So you were being treated differently and they were getting jobs for whatever reasons. So my family went through that personally because we looked so mixed. So I saw my aunts and uncles and stuff getting passed down opportunities because of us being colored. That was immediately because a lot of what was happening was that, oh, let's make up a lost time because black people went through these things. But all the shades of black people went through that it wasn't just the African people, it was colored people as well. So I saw a lot of that happening. Um, it got better as the years went on. Um, so I started seeing a shift in that, but it just became very different. And Indian people, for the most part, they were just in the middle, that's colored people. So we were in the same category as to where we are. So certain jobs were being taken away from us in terms of where we, we were. At that point, we started experiencing what was called a brain drain. Mm. in South Africa. And the brain drain was that all my teachers from a lot of them from middle and high school started leaving South Africa. So Australia was the most common place where everyone was going to. So most of my teachers immigrated to Australia, um, to New Zealand, um, to England, um, to different parts of Europe. So this is where they started moving out. And a lot of families are immigrating that were colored because there weren't enough opportunities and we were being turned down for different things. I remember at that point, um, I was turned down for a CNN internship because they didn't feel, and they would send us the stuff. And, you know, um, I keep telling my mom to send me the stuff and she wants to hold on to it. I remember getting a letter and my mom still has it to this day. And it stated that I got turned down for the internship because of, I didn't fit the color classification. They were honest with stuff like that. Like if you didn't get the job, they would say it was based on race. And that's when I knew, okay, there's something wrong. Like we can't have contest. Like in America, you would get sued. Like we didn't even know anything about suing or anything. So you saw everyone leaving to go mm -hmm. to different parts of the world. America at that time was not as attractive to us as South African people, but it was mainly Europe. So a lot of people left at that time. And at that point, um, I did have some family members that were in Europe. So I was like, okay, you know what? Let me travel. Let me stay for a bit. Uh, so I ended up spending, you know, a few months. I took like a semester off from college and, you know, I stayed in Europe for a bit. And 
and I could see what the attraction was because it was a whole different world. And I was just like, wow, this is very, very interesting. And, you know, it's a different level. I got to, you know, visit like, you know, go to live soccer games and experience a whole different culture that was similar to what I grew up with. And I was just like, okay, this is great. But it didn't feel like it was quite me. And I was like, okay, you know what? Let me go back to South Africa because this is what I know. But in terms of where we were, when I got back home, there were so many people I had known that had left. And at that time, also, um, the Middle East was opening its doors to like medical professions. So a lot of people that I knew that were nurses or in nursing schools were moving to Saudi Arabia, moving to Dubai in terms of pursuing their careers because us as colored people, they want a lot of opportunities or the opportunities we were getting given was that it was, um, the joke was that it was affirmative action in, in reverse where it was just like, okay, we're giving all the, pe- the black people the opportunity. And then you also saw white people as well feeling that way. So you saw them leaving as well. So the government was trying to scramble to try to get people that were educated to stay in the country. But we went through that. Um, To this day, I still have family members that still go through it that are in my uh, neighborhood. My sister has gone through it um, as well. And my sister's a little bit darker than me. So she went through it the worst because of the shade of color that she was. So she's gone through the discrimination as well. But some of my cousins who are lighter skinned didn't quite go through that um, in terms of where they are. And at that time, when we sent in our CVs, we had to send pictures with our CVs. So you would get turned down from your job because people could see on your CV, there's your picture. Wow. So you wouldn't get interviewed because they saw your name and then they saw your picture. And it's sort of like, do you pass the color test? Wow. Is that, that I'm imagining wouldn't still be the case today. No, it's not the case now. It has changed over time. It's a little bit more subtle today because my sister has gone through, um, and so has my, I mean, my mom has stayed in, you know, working politics and nonprofit over the years, but Today, it's more of like who knows who. We call it connection call back home. And, you know, as colleagues, our nickname is Brainos. You know, we say Brainos are the mainos. You know, it's slang, but it's sort of like, it's I know you, I bring you in, I bring you in. And it's sort of like, it's it's alarming the way things work now. And when I go back home, I'm just like, wow, this is very interesting. And it's interesting because even though I'm not rich, I feel like when I go home, it's really hard to, like, I got to take a step back and I got to find a way to assimilate back in because of all the systems that are set up. And some people from the neighborhood where I grew up in are exactly where I left them years ago, Mm. in the same place, in the same neighborhood. And then also growing up, it was, I decided to go to college in my graduating class in high school. Since the way my high school was set up, not everyone went to college. They didn't push the idea of college because our high schools were set up where if you studied uh, a lot of finance classes, you could go straight into working into a bank. So you got enough credits in high school where you could go straight and you didn't need to, to get a college degree. So out of my graduating class, I think there was like 90 something of us. I think maybe 12 of us went to college. 
Wow. And that was huge. That was huge. Because they're like, why are you spending all that money? Why are you going to college? And it just wasn't a big deal. And college wasn't a big thing. We didn't have like sororities and fraternities. It's more of like you going into the working world. So I'm saying this to say was that that was like the first generation of like, this is the year you're 18, Nelson Mandela's release from prison. That was when people really started being like, okay, people of color can go to colleges and stuff. Um, and then after me going to Europe and coming back to South Africa after my second year, I was just like, just looking around in terms of my neighborhood and where things had gone and seeing all my family members that could travel and friends and teachers move. I was like, you know what? I want to experience America. So the next summer I applied for work exchange program and I came to Chicago for a summertime for a summer work position. And when I came to Chicago, I was just like, you can imagine it was like the biggest culture shock. Yeah. I was just like, whoa. Um, it was very interesting, but I, I'm so grateful that there were so many people that helped me become really open-minded that when I came here, it was more like, oh, you know what? I was just told to observe a lot more. Um, so just observing just the way traditional um, African-American people, people from different places, or even Africans from different parts of Africa were in Chicago. It was very, it was opening my mind because there were kids in the summer camp from all over the United States. It was a very good experience for me. And then I found my voice even more because I was just like, oh, wow, I can actually talk up. I can actually say I don't like this or I can say I can speak out where as in the part of South Africa where I was raised, I couldn't talk. So went back home and finished out the rest of school. And then, yeah. <laughs> well, that's a really real and honest perspective. So I appreciate that. And I know some of the, the harder memories are, are probably difficult to, to bring up. So I appreciate you being honest about that as well. Um, I wanted to wrap with this. Uh, I've, you know, traditionally done this while I was on the road. I've spent a lot of time in, in Southeast Asia. So I've interviewed a lot of people from that part of the world and I've interviewed a lot of Asian Americans. And through doing so, I've been able to talk to a lot of people who were refugees. Um, Cambodia, Laos, Vietnam. There are many refugees from that part of the world because of the, the war in Vietnam that uh, the United States was very heavily involved in. And, but I've become conscious through talking to a lot of these folks on the podcast that, you know, their refugee status and the things they went through are not the things that define them. So I've talked to a lot of people from Laos and Lao culture is incredible and the country is physically beautiful. And there's so many things that I love about talking to people from Laos. And so for you as well, like this is a very unique story in the sense that I've never talked to someone on the podcast about apartheid. Um, but like, I know you as a brilliant educator and there are many reasons to want to talk to you. And apartheid doesn't necessarily define a South African. So I was wondering if we could wrap with the things that you love about South Africa and the things that make you proud to be a South African. 
There are so many. That's an amazing question. No, no, it's a great question. So just in terms of just me being proud. So for me, I I identify with just being African. Uh, So for me, it's sort of like living in New York and living in uh, the Bronx, which has the largest concentration of African people um, in New York. Um, I'm surrounded by people from different African nations. So I always identify as being African and being proudly African. Um, So for me, my culture is the one of the things that I'm the proudest of, even though it conflicts with certain uh, values sometimes in America, I'm proud of the way I was raised firstly. And as an African woman mixed with my independence, I still believe in those traditional values of being, and sometimes it doesn't really gel with a lot of my friends that are traditionally American. They're just like, well, in a relationship, they're like, well, you guys do too much for a guy. Like you serve a guy, you, you know, you cook for a guy, you, you iron, you do all these different things, you clean the house. For me, that is, that is a badge of honor for me, even though I am, you see me as this independent woman in terms of the professional world, but in terms of relationships, we always taught to be providers and also to be a wife in certain regards or a partner in certain regards. So I'm very traditional in that sense. And I'm probably traditional in that sense because that's what makes me, me as being a partner, a mom, you know, those kind of things. So firstly that, and just our culture of embracing family and and, you know, embracing, you know, um, things like being around family, like traditions, like, you know, our holidays that we celebrate, those are things to me, it's sort of the true spirit of, of Ubuntu, you know, that for me, it's sort of like our humility, um, the humbleness. Um, usually I have to work really hard at being an extrovert, you know, because of my work. But for me, I would prefer in a setting where I'm taking a step back. So I'm very much an introvert in my personal life. I have to work very hard on being an introvert, even though I'm a friendly person. But for me, it's just just staying humble, you know, no matter what you have or whatever you've been through, just staying humble and just being about people. Um, and that's something I learned from home, just understanding people first and the respect for people and the different um, settings that they come from, just treating mm. people with empathy. Um, those are some of the things that I'm proud of. In addition, it's, we always taught to be hardworking. It's like, you know me, it's hard for me to stop working. (laughs) It's really hard uh, because it's, it's sort of like the work ethic where my my grandmother would always say, um, if a woman is sleeping, like the sun, as soon as the sunshine comes up, you've got to be awake. And I was raised to believe that if a woman is asleep, and again, this is the way I was raised, if you're asleep and the sun is up, you're lazy. Like you've got to be working from the time you wake up. But this is what my grandmother insulted in me. So for the for me, I'm just really proud of the work ethic that I have in terms of like, just even though I'm traditionally in a sense of like being a wife and being um, a mom or being a partner, but I'm not dependence Mm. on um on a male for certain things so for me it's a balance right the role that I'm playing it's more of like 
I'm traditional in that sense, but I'm independent in terms of like, I'm not, I can still have a job. I still do those different things when it comes to like, if I need to go to an event and I'm going to wear a traditional dress. So I'm still a career woman, but I'm still holding true to the values when it comes to families and how you treat your partner in a relationship. And some people see it as, you know, it's like, we have dinner parties sometimes and we have like a couple's night and maybe I'm there with my partner and it's like, I'm picking up that person's plate and I'm taking it to the kitchen and everyone's looking at me like, uh, what's going on. And it's sort of like, this is where the American assimilated side is clashing with the, the African yeah. side. But I'm like, well, this is part of my culture. This is what we do. But at the same time, I'm very assertive when it comes to, work in my career. Um, so for me, it's just the proud balance of knowing where I came from, you know, assimilating into the American culture, but not losing who I am um, as a person, as a woman in my goals, assimilating that with my culture. And then also just my love of education. You know, that's the final thing I would say. It's, this is something that I shared with people earlier this week, you know, that quote from Nelson Mandela, education is the most powerful weapon we can use to change the world. It is so true. When I was growing up in South Africa, we were taught that the most important profession were teachers. Mm. That's what we were raised with. Teachers would get housing subsidies. Teachers had high salaries. That's the way it was. It is in a lot of countries. But teachers are so highly respected, which I was shocked when I moved to the United States. Like, this is very different. So I was like... <laughs> Teachers are treated very differently. But for me, um, this idea that education is the weapon that will change the world, I've, hold, I've held on to that. And I've just, I've fought this idea of working in education and I switched from journalism. But for me, it's just been being humble and not not always relying on like worldly stuff. It's good to have like money and all these different material stuff. But at the end of the day, you do what you do because you're passionate about it. And I'm passionate about education and educating our kids. And for me, the rewards, yes, the salary is nice to have, but the rewards is with our students. And I just love when they're successful and I just get excited um, for the success of our students and just making sure that this generation of students don't have to go through some of the things we went through. Um, so I absolutely love what I, what I do. I wouldn't change it for any um, profession in the world. Well, listen, thank you. I know we've been talking about this for a while. Um, so I appreciate you doing this. This is also me like mixing my worlds a little bit, which I don't usually do. Um, and it's also, it's really interesting recording with somebody that I already know. It's actually a lot easier. Um, so yeah, thank you so much for sharing your story. I think that this will, uh, this will mean a lot to a lot of people. So thank you. No problem. Thank you for having me. That is a wrap on episode 206 of the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. Thank you so much to Dr. Watson for joining me this episode. And of course, Voyagers, thank you to all of you for tuning in. I'm going to play you a song here that will play you out. This is by a band called Hawk. And I'm going to read you a description on their YouTube page. So if you want to find the actual user, it's Joburg Hawk Band from the 70s. And the description says... Hawk was one of the most popular bands in South Africa in the 70s. 
They broke through the barriers of apartheid and performed together as a multiracial band performing what they called Afro-Rock. Receiving too much flack from the powers that be, they decided to try to go and make a go of it in the UK so that they could live and perform together on stage without apartheid restrictions. In South Africa, being the first Afro-Rock band, they had a huge underground following but were unable to perform together on stage in the town halls and they grew tired of the horrors of apartheid that tried to keep them apart. The papers read Hawk, the band that fled to freedom. This is one of their songs, Kissed by the Sun. So that song's going to play you out. As always, please, please, please take care of each other. I will catch you very soon. Kiss 
kissed by the sun. 